Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining us here. As they just said, that's how I remember it is a podcast that uh, examines the connection between memory and creativity. My guest today is very special for me for this first live version of That's How I Remember It. Kevin Morby is one of today's best songwriters. He's released seven solo records, was also a former member of Woods and the Babies. Last year, he put out an incredible record called This Is a Photograph, which examines history, family, memory, and more, which makes Kevin a perfect guest for this show. I'm a huge fan. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us. Come on out. So I have to say, I've been thinking about this conversation for a long time. Um, the, the podcast, this podcast started when I put out my last record, A Legacy of Rentals, um, and I wanted to keep talking about some of the memory stuff on that record. And my record came out just one week after yours, which was May 13th. Um, this is a photograph came out last year. And I was thinking ever since then that you were kind of talking about some of the same things from a different angle. Um, so thanks for being here. I am going to start how I start all of my, all of these. Um, and it's this, do you consider yourself to have a good memory? Number one, thank you very much for having me, Craig. I didn't know when to walk up. Um, I think it came up at a somewhat appropriate time. Um, but I do consider myself to have a pretty sharp memory for specific events. Um, with that said, there's still plenty of times where people come up and tell me a story, and I'm like, I have no idea of that taking place. Um, but people say that I'm very good at impressions, and I think the reason I'm good at impressions is also sort of how my memory works. It's when something makes an impression on me, then I really like I log it. Um, but, uh, if something was, I don't know, I don't, didn't make it a big impression on me or was kind of boring, then I kind of forget about it. And someone has to remind me. Um, yeah, I, I started this podcast thinking that all writers would say they have a good memory. That mm -hmm. was my thesis going in and it hasn't been the case. Um, most people qualified somewhat. Um, do you have a good memory for like, uh, um, shows like do when, when you, when you like go back and think about shows, uh, is that something like you remember yeah. pretty well? The ones that made a big impression on me. I mean, that's actually a good way of looking at it because there's plenty of shows where people are like, remember we saw that band play that one time at that bar? And I'm like, I kind of remember that. But if something made a big impression on, on me, I remember what the you know what shoes the lead singer was wearing or something like that. Um, so shows I've played or shows that I've seen? I, I was thinking about shows you played, but both, really. I, the answer is kind of the same for both. To be honest, yeah, yeah. How does the how does your memory like if you do have a good memory? How do you think it affects your storytelling and your songwriting? Um, you know, I really I'm a huge proponent of uh, telling a story sort of larger than life, the sort of like Paul Bunyan effect of you know if something takes place, I have no problem with sort of creating some uh, you know some fiction around it to make it a little bit better or to try to sell the idea of how it felt to me when it happened. Um, I'm I'm really big into that, so. Um, wait, I kind of forgot the question. What was the question? Well, how does, <laughs> sorry. how does, how does your memory affect your song storytelling? <laughs> your, your, your very sharp memory. It's um, uh, I, yeah, something, I'm the type of person, I saw that someone posted this quote the other day that said, um, from, uh, or, uh, from small experiences, we build cathedrals or something like that. And I was thinking about that because when it comes to my songwriting, something so small, I often use the example of if I'm walking down the street and someone says something and I, I happen to pass it, just as they say this one thing, for whatever reason, it can be the environment and it can be the way the air felt that day and this person's voice. I can hear that one thing and that can weirdly inspire like a whole record. Mm -hmm. um, so I think my memory will, will hold on to little snippets like that. Um, 
But in terms of telling a story about myself, I, I sometimes like the fog that surrounds a memory. So then I can kind of fill in the gaps with fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, it, uh, to me, it seems like through these conversations, a lot of people have mentioned details as like, you know, you, you, so for instance, if I'm just writing a song about a bank robbery, which I've never done, <laughs> um, but I put it on a corner that I've walked uh-huh. by a million times, it, it infuses it with some, maybe some honesty. Sure. And do you feel that in your own work? Do you, I mean, when you go to populate these details, is that where some of this shows up? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there'll be little, or it could be, I back to the example I just used, it could be something like there's a street that I walk past and I like the title of it. And then three years later, I carry that title around with me. And then I put that as, yeah, the street that I'm, I'm talking about in a song. I do stuff like that all the time. And it kind of blows me away sometimes because usually my albums are pretty recent. Um, they're pretty present day events that take place in my life. But every once in a while, there'll be a song that I was kicking around for years and years. And I'll be like, that's something that happened when I was 18 years old. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. There was a, there was one of the earlier guests on the show in season one was a television writer and he talked about, um, getting the details right in anything. And he said, if you don't do that, it's like a hollow bunny, you know, like an Easter mm-hmm. candy and you, you bite into it and there's nothing really there. Sure. And I thought that that's something that stuck with me. Um, your early memories of music. Do you, do you have like a first, first memory that, that concerns music or, or early, early times that you reacted to music? You know, I was thinking about this question ahead of this interview and there's this one thing that I always talk about and do, through doing so many album cycles through the years. There's this one story that I really tell about hearing Third Eye Blind for the first time. And that's kind of like my Beatles moment. Most people have the Beatles and I have Third Eye Blind. Um, but I've told that story so many times that I was actually thinking about the memory surrounding that where I was wondering how that story's changed or... My point being, because I've told that story so many times that I grew up sort of listening to like uh, Top 40, Casey Kasem, Countdown, Mm -hmm. um, music on the radio in Oklahoma, Third Eye Blind was the first rock and roll band to sort of come into the household that blew me away, that made me want to like buy a guitar and all that. But because I've told that story so many times, I've I've made the mental effort to try and remember other times that music influenced me before that, Mm -hmm. because I know that there were that... um, and a big one, I think, is I saw the movie La Bamba with my dad when I was very young. And I really pulled this memory. You know, it's depicting Richie Valens' life, um, his tragic, uh, his beautiful and then tragic life. Um, but there's a there's a moment in that movie where his brother, who's this sort of drunk, who gets really upset um, when Richie dies naturally, but he, he gets super wasted. That's his way of dealing with it. I remember my dad telling me, don't be like that guy. So yeah. that's an early memory that I have. Don't be like Richie Valens' brother. He's too drunk. Um <laughs> Am I right? Richie Valens shows up in the, your last record. He does. And that's so, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I, I name drop Rich, Richie Valens. Um, and I think things like that, you know, so there's that film. There's also, um, um, what's this movie called? It's like loosely based off of Bruce Springsteen's life. Uh, Eddie and the Cruisers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My parents like that movie a lot. And then I remember, I think, like, if I really go back, my earliest memory um, surrounding music was I remember my best friend, um, growing up, it, it was sort of my first memories are around hanging out with him. His name was Pavlin. He lived across the street. And I remember the two of us, his mom took us to see The Lion King. And it wasn't in theaters. It was like a school auditorium or something. But I remember thinking the music of this film is enhancing my experience with the film. And I remember maybe not being able to articulate that in my four-year-old mind. But I remember feeling that. Yeah. I I, when, uh, I recently had a memory of because of doing these um, shows, 
And my friend and I, when I was really young, were trying to compile a list of good bands. And this is before we were going on scraps. Like we'd hear a song on a radio, and we but we we were keeping a master list. Mm-hmm. And I remember him coming over and ringing the doorbell and telling me, "Wings." And I said, nice. "What?" And he said, <laughs> "Wings. It's a good band." And so we went upstairs and we put it on the list. I don't think we knew it had Paul McCartney in it. We just knew. He heard amazing. a Wings song and he deemed it worthy for the list. So That's we, amazing. we put it on. Um, how about like when you got when you got um, when you got older? Was there music? I mean, were, 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 was some of this music your parents too, or was that all yours? So, as the Third Eye Blind story goes, it's it's very involved in or a lot that has to do with that story is that my parents weren't very musical, mm-hmm. so they weren't listening to um, really anything other than the radio. And for my dad, mainly talk radio. But you know, in scrounging for those old memories of like, I know there was some other musical elements to my memory. Um, my dad had this uh, Bad Out of Hell by Meatloaf tape. And I remember even just the way that that looked, it looked dangerous to me. It looked scary. But kind of in this fun wanting to explore whatever that was. And then my mom, I always say, she loved Bruce Springsteen, Michael Bolton, and um, the third one's escaping me now. Um, some other guy. And I have this memory of my mom of like playing football on the front lawn. It's when we still lived in Oklahoma City. And... Um, playing football on the front lawn and my mom just blasting Michael Bolton. Rod Stewart's the other guy. Um, But just blasting Michael Bolton as she drove down the street. And I thought that her windows must be down because the music is so loud, but her windows were up. (laughs) How about um, when you, when I've been asking this throughout my shows, do you, is there music that you associate with certain seasons? Like, uh, are there, is there music that you only listen to in the fall or in the summer, et cetera? Or is it all the same to you? That's a great question. There's definitely, yeah, there's definitely bands that fit with seasons for me. Like, and it's probably because of a memory I have attached to that. I'm trying to think. I remember, like, laying in the back of a friend's car, um, listening to My Bloody Valentine. Um, and, and it was, like, full autumn. And by this time, we were in Kansas City. I just remember, like, the Kansas City fall. And I remember the windows being down. Um, and when I think of the summer, I mean, a lot of these memories, especially from my childhood, like, I think just saying it now off the top of my head, like a summer song would maybe be all star <laughs> by smash mouth. Yeah. Like the smell of chlorine is embedded into that song for me because I remember going to the pool the summer that came out when I was nine years old or whatever it was. So, you know, when summer comes around, I like to throw in some smash mouth. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm really into that. I, I think one of the things I've, I've found from this is a lot of, a lot of it's when you hear it the first time, you yeah. know? And, uh, and then when when you get older and maybe are like more aware of you know buying your own records or more especially if you start to get into the industry in any way, you start to you know it's release dates right you know mm-hmm. like it's like oh I, that record came out in fall so right. it's a fall record but I mean I think like for me hard rock is always summer because it's like it reminds me of driving around in a car with mm-hmm. your friends and listening to Guns and Roses drinking or beer yeah that yeah. kind of thing you know um, I mean how about you you you've moved you've moved a number of times you've lived in New York L A Kansas mm-hmm. City. Is there places, do places kind of affect that too? Is there music that sounds not as good to you somewhere or vice versa? For sure. I think places have a lot to do with with my memory and everything that I, I write about. I was going to say something almost less seasonal, but I certain tours, there's always the record that I was listening to on a certain tour. Yeah. So I, I can map out a lot of my life of, uh, oh yeah, that like that Amon Dunes record was in 2015, summer through Spain and Portugal. I really remember like staring out the window, listening to that record. So I think that's a, it's probably how I classify my whole life or, you know, just by tours. Um, but 
<laughs> Wait, what was the last question? Sorry. <laughs> well, that, that's it. I mean, it's it's music that sounds places, but actually, it's it's. I wanted to. It actually leads me to my next question because I, I I think there's something to this, you know. And I and I, I know for me, um, well, the audience has something to say. You know, you put all your hopes, your dreams, your memories, your experiences into a record, and then you release it, and then yeah, the audience takes it and you know mm-hmm. has their own experience with it. And I, I was thinking when I was preparing this about City Music, which is your 2017 record, mm-hmm. I discovered that record, and I was driving around coastal Oregon. I mean, it, it there's oh, no city, so yeah, that's right. Funny. And so I was just driving around for a few days, listening to that nonstop. My memory of it, even though it's city music, is mm-hmm. is no one around. That's really um, funny. I got like a five hundred dollar speeding ticket. It was uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, connected to it. I had California plates. The the small town Oregon guy was like, "Oh, California, right?" <laughs> and I was like, "Wait till you see my driver's license, New York." You know, so oh, wow. I wasn't getting out of that. Double but, uh, whammy. So, and, but I also want to say, have you ever had something ruined, be like a piece of art, film, book? music ruined because of your memories attached to it. Yeah, for sure. I think probably the obvious one would be breakups. Yeah. There's always those. But, you know, actually, this is a great question. There's one time that I was listening. I never got to in a Sonic Youth. And I remember making I was the effort to. I was like, you know what? I was maybe, I'm 35, about to be 35. And it's probably when I was like 21. Mm. And I was living in New York at the time. And I'd gone back home to Kansas City to visit my parents. And on the flight back here, I was like, I'm going to make a conscious effort to get into Sonic Youth. Like, on this flight. It's going to begin now. <laughs> and as the plane was ascending, we got hit by cr- the craziest turbulence I've ever been in. And I was like, it's a sign from God. Yeah. Like, I'm not, <laughs> no Sonic Youth. And I turned it right off. So I think Sonic Youth was ruined by that memory, yeah. maybe. That's exactly what I was, I was hoping you'd have something. I, I have, it's not music, but that... Um, that movie, Talladega Nights. Talladega Nights. Oh, did yeah, it and, something? And, and, well, I was waiting for a phone call, and I went to the, the kind of heavy thing, and I went to the movie to kill time. When I got out, got the phone call, not good. And mm. um, even now, when people, some people are shake and bake or something like that, sure. like, Ugh. like, you know, sure. like, like that there's a really weird, I know it's very funny to people, but I think that these, our own experiences can override whatever. For sure. You know? I won't listen. It's become a superstition with this with this Sonic Youth Band. I, <laughs> I won't listen to them on a flight or at all. Oh, wow. No offense. <laughs> I did see them live once and it was it was amazing. So I'm a huge fan, so I'll cover for you. Cool, there we go. Yeah. Um, uh, how about like eras like you're drawn to when you when you go to watch a film, book, movie, whatever? Um, are there are there are there do you like 50s movies? Do you like future movies? Is, is there anything like Wait, what? Sorry, what are you doing? No, I, 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 I'm is wondering if there's any particular eras. Like, like if oh, something comes errands. out, era. Like, you know, if, oh. if you're if you're the guy who's seen every World War II movie, or like, is there anything sure. any part of history that you're just particularly drawn to? You know, and I think my last record has a lot to do with this. I love anything sort of mid-century, um, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, but I also love the 80s. I was born in the 80s, but at the the tail end of it, I was born in 88. Mm-hmm. So I find that. Um, that a fascinating time and it also the that as the sort of you know segue from the 70s into the 90s culturally is so interesting to me um and there's so many great things happening musically in the 70s and then so many i don't know in the 90s production i guess production wise i love the production in the 70s and then um i hated the production in the 90s and i feel like the 80s had to do with it. it was like this tunnel that connected the two um but I do love particular eras, you know? I'm, I'm down for any period piece. Um, I, I love the past. I, I, I find the past fascinating. I, uh, I, I have, like, even years. Like, I'm like, 71, awesome. 
72, eh, yeah. 73, eh, 74, I'm in. You, you know, know, like, I, I don't know why, but I've made, I've had these weird prejudices about specific years. I love it. On my last tour, um, uh, we got really into thinking about, uh, or just, just specific years and, and what records came out in them. And it's so easy to just look on Wikipedia and yeah. see the answer to all of that. But we were discussing, we were like, what the pound for pound, what the best year for music would be or the most influential. And I threw out 77 thinking there's no way that could be true. Cause that's become such a sort of trope 77, such a popular year. But then when we looked up all the records that came out that year, it's kind of, it's like such a banger. It's crazy. Like I think, Tusk came out and also Death of a Ladies Man and also Rockets to Russia. Like it just it's unbelievable. Saturday Night Fever, probably. Probably, yeah. Which is a big record. So um I'm all about, yeah, just I, the, the years. As a as a Minneapolis native, I would say eighty four is Purple Rain, Replacements Let It Be, amazing. and Husker Du's and Arcade. That's amazing. That's a pretty good yeah, uh, trifecta right trifecta there. Trifecta right there. So that's always my go to. Eighty four is one of the years I I, I perk up that's at great. you know. Um so uh, moving on to your last record, um, it's already nine months old, but like, as I said at the top of this, I felt when I first heard it, we were speaking to a lot of things, um, about memory, memorials, family, etc. Um, this is a photograph. Photographs are a way we capture a moment. The record's title nods to that, but, and it appears throughout the record, but there's a real power in saying this is a photograph mm -hmm. when it's a song and a record mm -hmm. also. Did, were you, I mean, was that, was that, a, was that part of a, I don't want to say, were you exploiting that power? Kind of? yeah, I was exploiting it. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, I liked looking at it as, um, as an object or as one object. I like the idea of that of, because oftentimes I think people always say I release records very quickly and you know why why don't I, I i take more time with them and i like to think almost you know if i'm lying on my deathbed i want to be able to look back at my catalog and for each record to almost seem like a song um all that just to say i i like the record as like one solitary thing obviously there's a whole universe built around it but i like the idea of yeah the song and then also this this whole record being one thing one photograph yeah i mean making records is another way of marking our place in time it, for what I read, your father had a health scare that spurred some part mm -hmm. of the beginning of this record. Um, I mean, is, is that is that the time that this marks to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I talk about this is a photograph, what I'm really speaking of there is this photograph of my father, which I found this um, this evening that my he had had a health scare and he had collapsed and had to be taken to the, the hospital in an ambulance. Luckily, everything ended up being okay. But when he was released from the hospital that night, my mom just kind of unearthed these old family photographs and I found this one of my father. Um, he would have been in the age that I was at the time that I was looking at it. And it also would have been the first year um, or the year that I was born. So in 1988, and it's when we're living in Lubbock, Texas. Mm -hmm. And I'd never seen this family photo before. And I thought it was so interesting that I'd found it on this evening of all evenings. And, you know, weird little things like when they took my father to the, the hospital, they'd taken his shirt off to, you know, connect him to all the the IVs and everything. And he had a shirt off in this photograph. So I felt they were having this sort of direct conversation with one another. Um, so that's really the photo that I think of. And I, it, it's in this photo album that I've looked at a million times and I must've seen it, but not registered it. But, you know, given the circumstances, it really stuck out to me at this time. So I think if there's one photo to represent the record. It would be this photo of my dad. You know, th these days it takes like nine, six to nine months to manufacture vinyl and records come out there's a longer lag time sometimes yeah. now. So does, do, does making a record that marks a moment, does it inherently mark a different time these days? 
In a way, it's a great question because of the the lag time. And I mean, usually by the time a record of mine comes out, I'm somewhat bored with it. I'm mm-hmm. sure you would relate. Yeah. Um, I've heard those songs, but there's always this exciting moment to it where before you release it, it still feels like it's very much yours. So I can listen to those songs. And then once it's available to the public, I'm, I'm no longer, then it becomes, then it feels like an object. Whereas before it feels like these weird files in my email. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's definitely a different uh, experience, you know, around writing a record around releasing one. Um, the two very distinct, different experiences. Just, yeah. Just yesterday I went to look for a song to send to a, a musician that's um, going to do something with us. And I, I went back to a record, um, the record that we're going to hold steady is going to put out next month. And I saw all the files mm-hmm. and it was like, it was kind of like, wow, this, and I, I, I've already got the vinyl in my hand, Yeah, but it's weird to look at like this I became like this, you know, that's cool. Um, when you look back on stuff like your own life and do you think of a year, do you say like, Oh, that happened in 2018. Or do you think of like, the record cycle you were on. I kind of think of the record cycle I was on. Like that's my only hope at remembering what year it was. I often like experiences in my past. I kind of leave that. It's almost like explaining a dream. Mm-hmm. I'm like, so-and-so was there and I was in New York and like, it's like in this person showed up for some weird reason. I feel like all my stories are like that. They're kind of like these weird, strange dreams and touring has both messed up my memory, but also given it the only anchor to realize or remember where I was at a certain time. That, I, I, I'm glad you said that because I am absolutely a record cycle person. I'm uh-huh. like, uh, people ask me how, how old my dog is, and I, I have to do like, well, as we all want the same things tour. Yeah, it's exactly, and exactly. so that was 2017. You know, and I'm yeah. doing all this math, but the answer comes out in records. Yeah. Um, th- there's this great thing on the record that where you say time is a heavyweight champion, mm. and I it, it reminded me a little bit. Um, there's that book um a visit from the goon squad jennifer oh yeah Egan. i love that time book. is a goon she yeah, says and the goon always wins yeah, and so, the goon, so it, it it made but there's there's boxer imagery that comes up throughout the record a little bit the cha- you know that the champ the heavyweight champion of the world is something we think of you know historically joe lewis then yeah muhammad ali mike tyson etc is that i mean is, is that how you're using that in some way for sure you know when my father randomly collapsed sort of out of nowhere at this family dinner that we're at i remember thinking after the fact it looked the only time i'd seen someone sort of pass out it almost looked like he got hit and he like yeah. fell back into this wall and um it just it, it felt like something that i'd seen only in boxing before and you know there's some sort of connotation it's my father he's always been this person that i've looked up to and he's always been this stronger person who takes care of me is the first time that i was ever sort of lifting my father off the floor as opposed to the other way around um and so i just you know and then finding this old family photograph he looks so young and so confident and sort of strong with his shirt off on this front lawn and then everything not to say you know my dad's gonna hear this you're a very strong man dad jim morby and you looked great with your shirt off there on the floor but (laughs) Um, and in the ambulance, but it was, it was a different, it was a different vibe. And, um, and so, you know, it was just that, that thought or that idea that, you know, you can do whatever you, you, you want to maintain this body and this life, but eventually time will get the best of you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's amazing. Hey, I'm Craig Finn here on that's how I remember it. We often talk about music. So I wanted to mention DistroKid and their new app for iPhone and Android. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. 
Over a million artists rely on DistroKid to get their music into Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. With this app, you can sign up and pay for a new DistroKid account or sign into an existing one. You can upload new releases. You can get notified when you've earned royalties, edit your account details, check your streaming stats, add lyrics and song credits, edit release metadata, and so much more. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS and Android. Go to the app or Play Store to download it. So you went to Memphis to write this record. Memphis is a city that obviously has a lot of American and music memory for and history. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated there. Elvis, Graceland, Sun Records, Stax Records, Jeff Buckley drowned there. More, re- more recently, Joe, Jay Retard passed. Um, why? So this happens... Why did you head to Memphis? You know, it's. I feel like if at a different point in my career, if you were to say that I got obsessed with Memphis, I would maybe roll my eyes and think like, oh, I just became one of those guys. Yeah. But, you know, everything has its time and place. And Memphis, for me, just the light bulbs all sort of uh, went off at the same time. I was on tour. Um, or actually, I'm sorry. My, my girlfriend is from um, Birmingham, Alabama. And so she spent a lot of time as a, a, a child going to Memphis for vacation. And we took this road trip to see her parents. And on the way back, we stopped at this hotel, this sort of famous hotel there called the Peabody Hotel, mm-hmm. um, which is a great place. And I just kind of had, you know, I, I never really played much there. I realized that as a solo artist, I'd never played in Memphis. And that seemed puzzling to me. So I wrote my booking agent and I was like, we should play in Memphis sometime. And I went back. There's this great place called the Crosstown Concourse. And I played a show at this this really awesome sort of, um, I, don't, I don't know how to describe it. It's this big old Sears building that they now use as like a venue and an art gallery and all these different things. Um, and I played in this theater there and I had this great time. And... From there, you know, during the pandemic, when it came time to sort of choose a place to go right, um, it was kind of a no-brainer to go to Memphis. And all I think Memphis is one of these towns where there's obviously so many uh, connotations tied to it, and it's so easy to just think of Elvis. And that's he's certainly a huge part of that there, or Martin Luther King's assassination. All those are very important things. But once I got there, I was blown away by how many other stories were very similar to someone like Elvis that all took place under the umbrella of rock and roll, like the the death of Chris Bell um, from Big Star or Jay Retard or um, Jeff Buckley. You know, I was sort of blown away by these sort of mysterious, eerie deaths that had taken place there. And as sort of mysterious and eerie as they all were, since I went there during COVID, it still was a comforting place because I thought all of these people lived and died in a time before this complicated thing that was happening with us was taking place. So it weirdly, even though I was living through COVID, I was very much thinking about the past sort of all the time. And it's a great city. It really memorializes its past. And sometimes it, it can feel like a museum of itself or something. And I like that about it a lot. I love Memphis. I, I'm obsessed with Memphis. I have been for a long time. I'm my one of bandmates in Hold Steady lives there, and uh, one of our bigger songs is Sequestered in Memphis. I think I became myself obsessed with Memphis in the 90s. Well, my favorite band from the 90s was the Grifters from mm. Memphis, and I actually became friendly with them. They would stay at my house where bands would stay at, and uh, and I remember them coming up to me um, at a show at the Uptown Bar in Minneapolis, and I, I met them for soundcheck, and Dave Schaus, the singer, said, hey, we played, um, I think it was Iowa City the night before, and we played with um, Tim Buckley's son. His name's Jeff Buckley, oh, wow. and it was he was just coming up. And it, and I, I always wanted the Grifter guys to think I was cool, so I didn't know who Tim Buckley was, but uh-huh. I sort of faked that. And uh, <laughs> and but that's when I first heard about Jeff Buckley. Sure. And then 
when I was thinking about this, that's how I think Jeff ended up in Memphis. Yeah, he's through he's the, grifters, the grifters. Yeah, and um, and ended up um, drowning there. And I'm wondering, because I think I know the answer. But did he research that? It, it, he he's mentioned on the record. I think in. It, it, it comes up and mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you like, you know, when you, did you research the, did you know enough about it to do, there's some specific details in there that I think suggest that you did some research. Yeah. And it's really the first time that I've worked on a record where I did any sort of quote unquote research. And it, it really was, and really felt like research. Um, but usually I let things sort of what I was saying about when I describe old memories, I sort of let them be abstract or open to interpretation. But with this, I felt because I was specifically name dropping somebody who I didn't know and if his family heard it or if he were to hear it. Um, I wanted to get sort of the details right and honor his memory in that way. And I found his death so perplexing and strange. He drowned in the Mississippi River the night before he was going to um, record the follow-up to his like hit first record, debut record, Grace. Um, and his band was like flying in as he went for this sort of just random swim on, I think he died on like May 17th, 1997. I could be wrong, but... Um, but I did do my research. And so I, I just, you know, I think because most stories in Memphis have to do with Memphians or people from the South, the fact that he was from California, but then sort of cut his teeth in New York, I related to that as I've lived in both places. And I feel like he must have been in search for uh, of something similar to what I was there to look for. You know, he was trying to follow some sort of breadcrumb trail back to to Memphis um, to get at the kernel of, of rock and roll or or of the past in some way that I really related to. I, I mean, that's very much that there's the, the Memphis of, I like it because it's, it's cool. And the grifters are from there, but there is some feeling I had and still have that they were tapping into something deeper than I had access to. And, yeah. and whether that's real or imagined, that was part of it for me. Totally. And like the Delta blues and, you know, everything that came from Mississippi before it. And it's a, it became a, you know, a town because of Elvis, but also because of, all the people who influenced Elvis, you know, and because of Highway 61 connecting Memphis to Chicago, and that was a town you stopped in, and I didn't know all of this stuff, and then learning it, it's it's a good thing to do. I've made a living off of rock and roll, so yeah, yeah, it felt like something I needed to do. You know, I have to ask, and this is not really, uh, this is off topic for the podcast, but when you were living and staying at the Peabody and writing, mm -hmm. I did you see the Ducks, the, yeah. the Ducks March? Did you feel? That they were more coerced by food than they let, uh, <laughs> than they than they they let on. They they tell you the ducks are going to march. That's each really night. funny. And I felt like they were kind of chasing food. That's really. I mean, I think all animals, <laughs> if you want to get them to pose or to follow you, they're probably after food. For those of you who don't know, there's a duck procession that takes place every evening and morning at the Peabody Hotel in Memphis. Um, and this is during COVID, so it was like October 2020. It's peak COVID, pre-vaccine, and. The hotel was pretty empty. I, I often describe it as it's like I was staying at the uh, Plaza. It's like when Kevin McAllister yeah, stayed yeah. at the Plaza Hotel in Home Alone 2, lost in New York. Um, that's what it sort of felt like. But they upgraded me to a suite. I was there for a couple of weeks. And back to Jeff Buckley thing, I really feel like most of my time there, I was exploring all these things, but mainly Jeff Buckley's story. And a lot of Reddit threads lead me to you know his old stomping grounds. Do you, when, when you go to Memphis or wherever... Do you know by setting aside X amount of time that you'll get the material you want? No. And there's so much doubt involved in it. And, you know, like you brought up City Music earlier, and that's a record I wrote when I was living in Los Angeles, but I wrote it about this sort of fictitious New York, but also kind of, you know, um, superimposing my memory of New York onto mm -hmm. it at the moment, um, ha having not lived there. And this is really the first time where I'm like, I'm writing a record about a place and I'm going there. And there were so many 
you know, and all like it was, a, it was a, such a strange time with COVID and everything, but there were so many days where I was like, what am I doing? Like Jeff Buckley, there's, I had read that he, um, he had volunteered for a shift as the butterfly keeper at the Memphis Zoo, um, in between his tours. The light is right in my eyes. Um, it's like, I'm really being interrogated by Jeff Buckley. Um, but he, uh, he, he, um, he had volunteered for a shift as a butterfly keeper. And I thought that was so interesting. And also like something sounded like something me or one of my friends would do in between tours, something just sort of grounding and a nice way to come home. So I would spend days at the Memphis zoo and just trying to, you know, get close to, to, to something, be it his spirit or, or something else. But, um, there were plenty of times being at the Memphis zoo, like, what am I doing? Um, but ultimately I'm really glad I did stuff like that. Does the, I mean, in general touring, you, you you tour a lot. You you release a lot of music. Do you, does the motion itself help your creativity? I mean, do you yeah? Do you get stuff just by moving around? For sure. Um, I I moved around a lot as a kid. Uh, maybe you've noticed. I keep bringing up all these places in the Midwest. We never really moved outside of the Midwest, but we moved around a lot as uh, when I was a child, and I think that helped. I don't know. That's made me want to move a lot, around a lot as an adult, and. It's really a sort of yin yang effect. Like I've got to go out and and do the thing, and then I got to come back and sort of nest and and take all those ideas that I got and sort of grow them. Um, but one doesn't really exist without the other with my creative process. Well, here. So speaking of memory, I was um, I can't remember. This is uh, we met at the wall, last waltz a few mm -hmm. years back, and I can't remember if you told me this or I read this in print somewhere a few years ago. But it's you talked about somewhere, me, either to me or someone about buying a house in, mm -hmm. in, in Kansas City so you yeah. have kind of a home base. Yeah. And um, does that have a role in keeping you solid? And um, does it also end up being a place where you can like kind of bring home stuff? From totally. Tour? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was a big... I've told this story a million times before, but one time I stayed with Bradford Cox from Deer Hunter um, on tour. And I was living in LA at the time and I just moved there from New York and he lives in Atlanta. And I saw his beautiful home and... I was like, how did you do this? And he's like, I just don't live in LA or New York. You can, you know, other places you can buy things. And he was like, yeah. you have to go. He's like, the moment you get any money from music, uh, and he was like, Kim Deal told me this from the Breeders. Uh, yeah. The moment you get any money from music, you have to go buy a house. And I took that advice very seriously. And then I met, later met Kim Deal and she was like, uh, she's like, Johnny Bonebreak from X told me to do that in the 80s. Um, so I bestow that onto the next generation of indie rock. But I... <laughs> It's it's definitely given me the security that it's it's really helpful for me and um and yes I do like to bring the world back it's 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 created this sort of place where I can yeah bring back my my artifacts and since then I've started to buy stuff that I like to sort of bring the world back into that and it it's very it's a big part of my process yeah I was thinking I mean I have not done that and I and I honestly I do think it's a mistake that I didn't do it earlier and haven't done it but I was thinking about all the stuff that I've kind of had from going on tour sure. that sort of just gets lost in the wind yeah. because you don't have somewhere solid. You move it to the apartment and then you move again and then things, For sure. you know? And so I, I, I feel like it is a good, the way we travel, it, it, it must be, have a role in like keeping your history alive. Yeah, absolutely. And it's nice to return to where I grew up and, there's also something I call it a soft landing. I'm always happy to come back and I'm always happy to leave, but it's, it is a nice place to just sort of shut out the temptation and be able to work. Yeah. Right on. Um, so attached to the, to the record, you did a photo show and a photo book of your photography that happened during the making of the record. 
Does stopping to capture these moments or revisiting and working with the photos force you to stay in these moments longer? Yeah, for sure. Having this whole collection of um, photographs surrounding the making of the record. For, yeah, absolutely. Stuff that I would have probably forgotten about, but um, now I'm grateful to, you know, have a reminder. Yeah. I mean, what did you, what did, what did you, what did you photograph? What did, what was the things that were interesting you? You know, as you walked around, it was, there was a lot of things like, you know, I mentioned the, the Memphis zoo. There's also this plaque there at the Memphis zoo that Columbia records donated to the zoo in Jeff Buckley's memory. I photographed stuff like that, you know, mm -hmm. that I just found to be sort of strange and interesting. And I don't know, just a lot of pictures of sunsets over the river or, or whatever it was, you know, I just walk around with my camera. I went to a lot of cemeteries. I got really into, there's so many amazing, famous people buried in Memphis. And I got really into hanging out in different cemeteries. Um, Mainly just places where dead people went. And that yeah. was <laughs> kind of what um, I was talking about. Have you always taken photographs? I have for a long time. And I kind of stopped maybe for a year or two. And then I'm, this has really got me back in the rhythm. And it's a, it's a nice thing to do. For, I, I love it. Does it, force you, does it force you to kind of linger in that moment a little bit? And, and, and do you think that that at all affects songs? Yeah. Um, especially in this case. I mean, it just really gives you, like I said, I think there's, plenty of things that I photographed that I would have forgotten about had I not had, you know, physical prints of them. Um, so I think a lot of those things, the, it was all part of the research. Um, you know, a lot of things that ended up in the lyrics may not have, had I not had this, this physical right. photo of them that I was going through kind of the whole time that I was writing. Very cool. So I've been meaning to ask you this since the record came out, you say, you know, in, in the last song, Goodbye to Good Times, you say they just don't make them like that anymore. You go on to name Otis Redding, Tina Turner, Mickey Mantle, and Diane Lane. And to me, Diane Lane seems like an outlier. <laughs> is that just because I've gotten old? Well, no. You know, my thing about Diane Lane is she, I, because I guess because she's in The Outsiders and she's in Rumblefish, and Rumblefish is black and white, yeah. and they're both Essie Hinton um, films. And I, at some point, I, I guess I, I, I don't know. I was like, Diane, I, I thought that the movie had been made well before it was. And I, I, when was the outsiders made? I know it's depicting the fifties. Let's say it's 82. If I had to guess. And because I was born in 88 and I saw that movie in the nineties, I think it, I just always thought it took place in the fifties. And so, you know, that lyric, I say, uh, sometimes I could die young Otis Redding and sometimes I could survive Diane Lane. And I think because of her role in Rumblefish and the, uh, in, in the outsiders, though that was you know released in the 80s and filmed in the 80s it represented that era to me very cool yeah i mean i i get i get it makes sense now but and and rumblefish does look old um, it does look old it's black and white yeah, yeah. Um, um and i i put diane lane in the song also so it's really something what's your lyric about diane lane uh well it it it, it concerns other film stars it's, it's okay. a song called ascension blues and it says uh I think it says Diane is a B-side, so I need a little second. Uh, okay. But Diane Lane kept me sane through the spring. I was flirting with her films. I was trying to say something that seemed kind of interesting. I love it. Still trying to figure out it. if she felt anything. There needs to be uh, a playlist um, on a streaming service of songs that name drop Diane Lane. Well, I think she was in Streets of Fire, and she was in the S.E. Hint movies, and she was in mm -hmm. uh, the Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Dane. So she is a rock and roll. She's a rock and roll. Actress. Yeah. Actor, you know. Um, so, All right, so... Next thing uh, is the first ever, that's how I remember it, audience participation moment. Um, and I need your help because we were talking earlier and I sort of set this up. What do you remember from shows? And uh, I'm wondering if anyone here, if someone here, I know someone has uh, seen a Kevin Morby show, can tell me 
where it was and roughly when it was. No one's if, been if, if, I know. No one, wait, wait. I, I have some. What's that? September 29th, Los Angeles. Of September 29th. Uh, two, this year, 2022. Oh, wow. September 29th, 2022 in Los Angeles. The venue? Ask him. I know it. Uh, uh, no, no, no. I, no, I know he's going to know it. I'm going to ask him something else about it. The Blasco in Los Angeles, downtown. Okay. The Blasco? Is that right? Yep. Uh, tell me something about that show that, uh, that, that only you would know. Well, I was I would have said my mom was front row center, but I, I now okay, took well, it to the audience. Amazing. Uh, amazing. Right. Yeah, so the, uh, that's my I'm mom. Gonna, for the podcast, I would say our audience member uh is now uh friends with Kevin's mom because they <laughs> uh sat together uh during the show at the Velasco in Los Angeles. But anything but then else? no one else would know. I don't know. I get, I ate I ate um like a chicken plate. Before the yeah. show that night, maybe my bandmates would know that, but no that, one here. No, no, no. That's sort of what I mean. I mean, I'm, 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 because I, I'm, I think was I, as I do this podcast, I, I realize that different people have different, and some people are just like, I went on tour. I don't know where I was. You I know? bought a shirt that day, a green shirt. A green shirt. Yeah. Is it that one? <clears throat> no, no. <laughs> no, it's like a lime green, green shirt. short sleeve shirt. I bought that that day. <laughs> okay. Any other shows? Yeah. Um, you played with Jessica Pratt at the Chapel in wow. San Francisco. Wow, that's Do you a know deep cut. roughly cool. when? when? 2014, 2015. Okay. What do you remember about that one? Nothing. I didn't know uh, I played that show. I knew that I did a tour with Jessica, um, who's the, the greatest, by the way, but I don't remember that show. I don't remember that. Show. I have another funny story about the chapel, though. Yeah. Woods played the first show at the chapel, and it was their first night operating, or maybe second night. Regardless, they had this safe in the upstairs that had like all their money in it. And we needed something because the, the drum kept moving. So someone got that safe and put it in front of the kick drum. And then the venue staff at the end of the night was like, someone stole the safe. <laughs> and everyone was tearing the venue apart. It was on stage the whole time. We loaded out, but there's just a safe was on stage and no one saw it. Wow. All right. That's amazing. All right. Well, any more? Well, all, all the way back. Uh, music Hall Williamsburg 2016. Oh. I think it was like a Planned Parenthood benefit. Okay. M yeah. Music Hall Williamsburg 2016 Planned Parenthood benefit. Yep. I remember that I was wearing a um, I Heart New York hoodie. Oh. Sharon Van Etten also played. Um, shout out to the God. Um, <laughs> that's and I remember that I had a chicken tagine that night <laughs> yeah. at, seeing... a, at, a, at Mogador. Uh, yeah, yeah, very cool. When I that's... eat chicken, I remember it. It's like a good pre-show meal. I always remember. This it. is Wade Boggs. Um, yeah, always ate chicken before every game, right? Yeah. Um, there we go. So uh, I, 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 this is a thing. This is. I mean, I feel like the chicken is the memorable thing. I, I had a thing. The whole study mainly does like residencies now, where we go in and do three shows in one city at a time. And I've noticed that you can say like, "What do you remember about the Denver shows?" Uh -huh. And I'll be like, oh, this, this, this. But if you say like night one, night two, night three, I have, it, they're all the same, you know. Yeah. So I wonder if some of our memory is attached to the motion and the change of, um, you know, the change of setting, etc. Like sure. there's a reset and when you tour, because I, I bet you know when you've done two night stands, could, do you think you could separate the two after a few years? You know, two night stands for me, it's always. It feel it's I always I'm of the mind one's gotta be great and one's gotta be bad. <laughs> and so I can separate them by that. I did two nights at Bowery one time and it was like the first time selling that many tickets and I 
I got so drunk after the first night as a celebratory thing. And anyone, if you were here, at, was at that second show, we were terrible because I was so hungover. Um, but I know what you're saying. It, it'll all blur. It's just into one city experience. Yeah, and I think the only way to reset it is kind of reset the uh, reset up the gear. You know yeah, what I mean? Or re, totally, you know, totally. Drive down the road and reset it up, and you can kind of like start or eat chicken. Yeah, or eat chicken just every uh-huh. night, but still somehow remember um, where where and what you ate. I think food is so much a part of tour, though. That yeah. I think that's actually a good thing having to do with memory for me on the road. It's it's because it's like the one way to experience a place, a new place, is to you know eat something good nearby or whatever. Yeah. So I do remember a lot of the meals. Yeah, I, I mean, I also feel like you're testing. Sometimes I find myself testing the edges of my memory. Like I'm pretty sure. There was a place that was over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. You're, you're, you're chasing it a little bit. Um, well, that's what I've got. Kevin, thank you so much for uh, being a part Thanks, of this. Craig. Thank, thank you. you. For, uh, thank you for being the first part. Thanks to everyone for coming. And um, please uh, listen and subscribe. That's how I remember it. And uh, I've had a lot of fun doing these. And uh, this one was great. So thanks for being a part of it.